Ask anyone who was working in the airline industry on September 11, 2001, and they'll have a story. What you're about to hear are some of those stories told by people who responded in the days, weeks, and even months afterward. Assisting families of those on the four flights. Helping fellow employees come to terms with their grief. Working on the front lines and behind the scenes to get airlines back in the air with a host of new safety and security rules. Some of these stories have been told to family or others over the years, and a few of these will be heard for the first time on this podcast. September 11th, Airline Voices. Hi, I'm Eric Olison. In today's edition, we're going to do a slightly different format. We're going to be having a conversation with Henry Hardevelt, an industry analyst, and some of his observations not only from September 11th personally, but also the impact that it had on the industry as a whole. My name is Henry Hardevelt. I am president and travel industry analyst at Atmosphere Research Group. Uh, on 9-11, I was Forrester Research's airline and travel analyst. And before that, I'd worked for various airlines, uh, including uh, TWA and Continental, and uh, obviously have been involved with the airline business and following the airline business uh, for decades. And uh, as an analyst, the impact of 9-11 was something that affected my business uh, that I studied, uh, researched, and wrote about. Uh, but also advised our airline clients on. And we were working at the time with probably more than 50 airlines around the world at Forrester. Thanks for that, Henry. So the first question I want to ask is one that I've asked everybody else that's been part of the podcast. How did September 11th start out for you? I was at Forrester Research as the airline and travel industry analyst the day you know on 9-11. Uh, so I live in San Francisco and I was out here uh, when everything occurred. I remember being awakened around 5.30, 5.40 in the morning when one of my very best friends in New York called and said, an airplane flew into the World Trade Center. What kind was it? And that was literally his question. Now it's you know half past five in the morning. I'm being jarred out of a sound sleep. And I said, I don't know. I don't have my TV on. It's 5.30 here or 5.40, whatever time it was. And I said, but it was probably one of those small Continental Express planes that we always see flying that seemed to be too low and too close to buildings. I said, but, you know, I'll let me go wash up and turn on the television and see. And we're on the phone when the second plane hits. And it was clear that that plane was a transport plane. You know, it was not a regional aircraft. And uh, that was the United plane, if I'm remembering correctly. And I told him, I said, that was no accident. And I said, I have to hang up. My world has just changed. And within a couple of minutes, my mother called from uh, where, where she and my stepdad lived. She wanted to make sure I wasn't traveling. Uh, my brother called. He wanted to make sure I was okay. Some other people started to call. And I told him, I said, look, I need to clear the line. I have to get ready. I'm going to have to go into the office because I'm not going to have a normal day. It was very, very clear that we weren't going to have a normal world within a couple of minutes of all of this happening. I remember watching, and I'm, I should add, I'm from New York. Uh, I remember going with my parents to dinner one, one time at Windows on the World atop one of the towers. Twin Towers were iconic. 
uh, and just watching everything happen was deeply personal on multiple levels. I had high school friends and college friends who I knew worked in the towers. Um, there was the obvious larger loss of life. And of course, the largest thing is this was a peacetime unprovoked attack on the United States using civilian airliners as weapons, simply because these planes had the United States flag on their tails or fuselages, and their names happened to be American and United. As the phone started ringing, what were some of the initial asks or reactions you were getting? As the analyst, uh, now I'm not an equity analyst, I'm an, ind- an industry analyst for anyone uh, listening. So if I don't look at stocks, I look at industry performance though. You know, we knew that this was going to have a serious effect on travel, on travel demand, both business and leisure. And one of the first things I was tasked with doing was figure out what this means to air travel demand so we can revise our forecasts and start advising clients. Because I know this sounds crass and I know this sounds callous, but I started getting calls within a couple of hours of the attacks from clients. What does this mean for travel? What does this mean for our business, regardless of what they were, whether it was an airline, a travel agency, a hotel or anything else? People started, you know, were wanting some kind of answers because obviously they knew they had to develop their own plans. How many employees might have to be furloughed or how many jobs could be kept? What does this mean for their business, their stock, whatever it might be? What would this mean in terms of people's ability to go places? Companies were calling, what if my employees refuse to travel? What do I do? We were dealing with something that we had never done before, which was a wholesale, massive fear of flying, fear of traveling by air because of these horrible, heinous attacks. You know, I remember, again, in the immediate days of 9-11 and being in touch with airlines. And again, our airline clients were really good. They're saying, look, here's what we're doing. Here's what's happening. Some were sharing information that, you know, they told me this is not public, uh, but they knew, by the way, that I was going to be called, which I was, by press for media interviews and comment and so on. And they wanted to make sure that I could represent the industry uh, uh, as best I could. Uh, And I took that responsibility very seriously then. I take it seriously now, of course. To be trusted with some of the information that I was was Uh, truly an honor, Uh, but it also just brought home the magnitude of what was going on, the complexity. And then I remember thinking, how do we put Humpty Dumpty back together again? At some point, airlines are going to be allowed to start flying. Crews are out of place. Airplanes are out of place. Everything is out of place. Rental cars at that point were out of place because people were just renting cars and driving them hither, thither, and yon. Uh, and trying to put the uh, industry back together, getting it restarted. And I remember, you know, when the hearings began in Washington to try to get aid, uh, federal support uh, relief for the losses that the government forced airlines to take and some other things. And just sitting there hoping and thinking, gosh, you know, this is one time where airlines really do deserve government financial support. Because if we don't support the airlines, we won't have an airline industry around And I remember one of my clients, and I'm not going to name the airline out of respect to him, calling me at the office saying, why did they do this to us? 
and telling him they didn't do it to your airline. This is not a grievance about your airline. This is an act of terrorism, an act of unprovoked war against the United States. And I said, had this happened 10 or 15 years ago, the planes would have said Pan Am and TWA, and I am ex-TWA. What happened that day changed our world. It changed the airline business in terms of obvious ways like security and you know having to screen passengers and ape, the evolution of APIS and everything else. But uh, now if you're in New York City or even in downtown San Francisco or Chicago or London or you know Tokyo, wherever you are, and, a, and an airplane flies low or what seems to be too low overhead, especially over a downtown uh, area with tall buildings, people stop. And if they're probably in their mid-20s or older, certainly 30 or older, they get a little nervous. Is this, is you know, what's going to happen? Is anything bad about to happen? Jumping ahead just a little bit to 2009, when United made their announcement that they were going to move uh, their operations center and headquarters out from the Chicago suburbs to what, after September 11th, was then the tallest building in the United States, I remember people saying, well, they just made the Sears Tower more of a threat than it was a year ago. I had that same thought when I saw the announcement from United. Now, I presume that United, uh, with a lot of risk management people and others, thought through all of these questions and risks and concluded that uh, the risk would be acceptable, that there would be no potential threat. And please, God, that will always be the case, not just for United, of course, but for anybody anywhere in a high-rise. But we also have to acknowledge the Pentagon is not a high-rise. It's a squat, what, five or six or so story building. Uh, And and an airplane was flown into that. Now, obviously, it was deliberate. Obviously, they flew it into the Pentagon because of what the Pentagon is and what the Pentagon represents. But at the same time, what happened in the wake of that was concern in me. I mean, we, we would hear at the time before 9-11 about Jerusalem-style attacks where a terrorist would walk into a building, uh, some kind of facility like a shopping mall, and you know start attacking people or blow himself up in a suicide attack and with the in, intention to harm or kill others. And I was always afraid of someone doing that in a supermarket in the United States or elsewhere. And in fact, doing so in a coordinated manner on a Saturday afternoon, when a lot of people are out doing their shopping, whether it's a supermarket or department store or shopping mall, whatever, movie theater, and doing something awful like this. Uh, And and when 9-11 happened, I thought, oh my God, now some crazy person could use airplanes of various sizes to fly them into supermarkets to scare people. One of the things that I remember in the days when air travel, the U.S. air transportation system was grounded. And I think it's important to remind people that it was only the U.S. that was grounded for four days. The rest of the world was still going about their business. One of the late night uh, evening, you know, 10 or 11 p.m. news broadcasts announced that United was going to be operating a humanitarian flight ferrying employees from San Francisco to Washington, Dulles. I remember they said it was going to be a DC-10. And to not be alarmed if you heard or saw an airplane flying out of SFO, San Francisco International, or overhead, depending on where you lived in the Bay Area. I'm not going to tell you how old I am, 
But never in my life have I ever heard a news announcer say, don't be afraid if you hear a commercial airplane overhead. It was definitely surreal for those couple of days, uh, having all the silence. And when you did see an airplane up in the air, everyone did a double take. Yeah. I mean, there were military planes flying around uh, uh, San Francisco, for example. Yep. We had them in Fort Worth as well. Um, uh, I'm not sure that they flew around here as much or as long as perhaps they did, uh, rightfully so, over New York and Washington, D.C., But I do remember the silence. The silence literally was deafening. And frankly, the only time it was ever close to that quiet, those days after 9-11, was 20 years hence in 2020 when COVID hit and air travel demand dissipated and airlines grounded so many of their planes and canceled so many flights. And there were just very few flights going anywhere. So as you were talking with clients, uh, be it airlines or others, what what really hit home with you? You know, I remember, again, as talking with people, and, and the unique thing is having worked in the airline, having worked in, you know, at airlines, um, having been only a few years removed from working at airlines, the pain, the tears that the people I knew at airlines was very real to me. You know, I, I recognized the names and faces of some of the United crews uh, because they were San Francisco. Some of them are San Francisco based. I can't say they were friends, but I did know them. It's a loss. A loss of one is, you know, all it takes. The loss of all those good people, plus the 3,000 or so others, it's beyond comprehension. One of the people on flight 77, which was the Pentagon flight, um, MJ Booth, she had been the general manager's secretary at Dulles for over 30 years. She had 45 years with American. So just about everyone who'd ever worked for American at the airport or worked with airports like we did from headquarters, we all knew MJ to some degree. And there's the normal grief and horror you feel as an air employee whenever you lose an airplane. But when you know somebody on board... It that grief just never leaves you. Yeah. Yeah. I remember in the days and weeks after, you know, talking with my friends at airlines and, you know, what am I going to do? Will I still have a job? What do I do if I don't have a job, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I remember, uh, uh, you know, the resilience. I mean, there's one thing about airline people. We are tough to quote the Timex uh, commercial, we can take a licking and keep on ticking. There is not a lot that stops us. 9-11, I think, came close to it. But I think it also created a resolve within us that we would not let these terrorists' attacks be seen as victorious. You know, I remember in in the months that followed meeting with technology companies about new screening technologies and new ways to use data to ferret out people who could do harm and uh, non-relational data analysis. I remember somebody talking about that, which I actually thought, by the way, was very interesting. But I also remember counseling a few of my colleagues and uh, people saying, I will not get on an airplane. I do not feel comfortable. I do not feel safe getting on an airplane. As a research company uh, that did uh, uh, some project consulting, 
having an analyst travel to a client was part of what we did. And this was, of course, long before we had anything like Zoom or Microsoft Teams or Google Meet or anything else to do video conferencing. And uh, it was really tough. And, you know, there were some very hard decisions. And I remember wondering myself, well, I have a job. You know, I remember talking with some people in revenue management in some airlines, what do we do about pricing? Yeah, and I'm talking to somebody, I said, look, you need to figure out what's the price of courage. And he said, what's that? I said, how low do you have to lower your fares to get people to start buying tickets? And by the way, it turned out to be roughly 99 bucks on transcom routes. I remember talking to somebody at one airline about, you know, should we add bonus loyalty points and do things like that? I'm like, that's going to seem crass. And, you know, that's not the problem. The issue here isn't loyalty. The issue is people don't want to die. It comes down to that. Yeah. How fast did bookings actually start to drop? Did you get any good feedback from your client companies? Yeah, we were talking with them and I said, look, I will sign an NDA. You know, I will do whatever you want. Uh, But I said, I'm not asking for specifics, but give me something because I've got to try to do it. The cancellation started coming in within minutes and, and it just roller coastered, if you will, within the next few days. It was, I can't remember, I don't remember the specifics of how deeply it fell, but it fell rapidly. And again, the only time I think since 9-11 that we've seen any kind of fall off as quickly as dramatically was with COVID. And COVID, by the way, was far more extensive an evaporation of demand than we saw with 9-11. But I also remember hearing a story when I was on a United flight from connecting in Denver to San Francisco. And I ended up sitting next to a United executive. Uh, she recognized my name uh, and we got to talking. And I you know, asked her, I said, how, you know, you know, how have things been for you? And she said, well, I'll tell you when I realized things would be okay. And she said, it happened sometime in mid to late October of 2001. She was in a gate area waiting to get on a flight. And she remembered a passenger yelling at a gate agent about something. I don't remember what it was. It was a connection or an upgrade or whatever. But whatever it was, was trivial. And she thought to herself, we're going to be okay. We're, you know, people are going to get back to traveling and get back to their behavior. And uh, if you take a look at the booking patterns, you know, there certainly was a trough and we lost a great deal of business. In fact, uh, uh, we lost, you know, some say that 9-11 killed off 10 years worth of travel demand. Uh, It took us 10 years to recover, but airlines did start to recover. We adapted, uh, you know, okay, we had to use plastic forks and knives on flights within the U.S. or to and from the U.S., all right, weird, but okay. You had to get to the airport two or more hours in advance. That certainly was not fun, nor was taking off your shoes and belts and you know the TSA strip tees and unloading your computer and everything else. But we all understood why. And the other thing that changed, I think we looked at the people doing the screening in the days before T- between 9-11 and before the TSA kicked in with a new level of respect. We actually saw those people. We saw who those people were. And I think we realized, you know what, these people are taking their jobs seriously. Yeah. Security at the airport. I know they're there to help, but it's also probably one of the 
biggest barriers people had. I do remember thinking, you know, and again, being San Francisco based, supposed to go down to LA for the day. And I called somebody and said, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to do this. I would literally have to get to the airport at around four in the morning for a 7 a.m. flight, travel down to LA, travel to their meeting. We'd have to cut the meeting short so that I could get to the airport two or more hours in advance to get back home. And I said, it's just financially just not worth it for you. Let's just wait to see how things go. We ended up doing a series of conference calls. But there's no question that a lot of trips obviously were scuttled as a result. A lot of people said, I'm going to travel by road, by train, by bus, whatever. Yeah, it's pretty clear that airport security is one of the things that probably benefited Amtrak and the Acela Corridor uh, more than anybody else. It also didn't help that we had all those restrictions on flights in and out of Washington. You know, you can't stand up during the last 30 minutes. You can't use the lav. Right. And overnight, Amtrak suddenly became relevant after 30 years of irrelevancy. Right. I remember flying on an American Eagle flight from LaGuardia to DCA. Uh, It was part of a larger trip. Uh, Normally, I would have taken the train. Uh, But because I was then traveling from Washington onward, it was all part of an uh, an itinerary. And I remember the pilot coming out and very nicely, and this is several years after, a couple of years maybe, or a year and a half, I can't remember, after 9-11, but the restrictions were still in place. And he basically said, look, he said, if you think you may need to use a restroom, please go now. Uh, Because he said, you will not have time to use it. If you think you want something to eat or drink, please get it now because... No one can be standing and that will affect cabin service. Uh, He said, you know, this is a safety thing. It's an FAA thing uh, related to the 9-11 attacks. It's not something personal. It's not an American Airlines policy. Please don't think we're out to try to make your lives miserable or anything like that. And he did a very good job and everybody understood. But it was weird when he came on. He said, okay, folks, the 30-minute clock begins now. Uh, And thinking, good golly, you know, you really cannot get out of your seat. I've never been anywhere where we're, you know, on any flight like that before. Where, I mean, it's one thing to be told, hey, we're in severe turbulence, keep your seatbelt fastened. There'll always be one idiot who decides he needs he or she needs to use the restroom. But in this case, it was a federal offense. And people complied. <laughs> right. They did. There was no, there was no, well, I'm special. You know, I got this trophy, so I don't have to do it. Don't you know who I am? That example gets, reminds me of another impact from 9-11. I mean, up to this point, you had the Pan Am shuttle, you had uh, Eastern slash Trump slash U.S. Airways shuttle running, what, 20 flights a day in between Washington, New York, and New York, Boston, you look today, those are almost all gone. Right. You're right. So so Trump shuttle ended up with 21 727s. Uh, uh, I think we took a couple more from Eastern, but we turned a few back. Pan Am, I think, had roughly same amount, somewhere between 20 and 25 727s. Um, Eastern before it used a combination of 727s and, and uh, DC-9s. Uh, but you're right. I mean, there would be... I think 20 flights a day is as many as 20 flights a day, you know, between New York and Washington and maybe 15 to 18 between New York and Boston, LaGuardia uh, and DC, Washington National LaGuardia. 
Boston on Eastern slash Trump Pan Am. Um, and uh, of course, Continental operated a shuttle out of Newark. And I think Piedmont uh, in the uh, around 1990 or sometime in the early 90s ran a, uh, for a short time a shuttle from Newark to both Boston and Washington. And of course, there were some other flights from Kennedy and so on. But you're right, 9-11 really did gut the shuttles because between uh, Amtrak and Acela Express, and as we talked about, the fact you'd have to get to an airport potentially two or more hours in advance. Now, to its credit, once it got going, the TSA worked to shorten the timeline, the screening time and everything for uh, shuttle passengers. The core promise of the shuttle was no reservations, show up at least 10 minutes before departure time, and you're guaranteed a seat even if we have to roll out an extra plane for you. 9-11, the TSA, or I mean, I'm sorry, the government said no more no reservation flights because we're going to have to figure out a way to somehow screen every person who wants to buy or has bought an airplane ticket, an airline ticket. And there was a massive amount of back-end technology work to develop that passenger uh, information screening, the uh, what we, I guess, call APIS. You know, so the no reservation benefit went away, show up 10 minutes before the flight went away, and along with that went the extra airplane, uh, you know, that we, they would fly for just one person. You know, and over time, as Amtrak built up a seller, frequency, reliability, even product, people realized, you know what, it's a lot easier to just go city center to city center. Uh, I'm not going to fly. And I think when I was at Trump, which was 1989, when we started the Trump shuttle, the LaGuardia shuttles had approximately call it 65 to 70, maybe a little bit more than 70% of the total passenger traffic. In fact, maybe it was even closer to 80% of the total number of people who were traveling each day between Boston, New York City, and Washington, D.C. Nowadays, I think the shuttles, it's flip-flopped almost entirely. I think the shuttles may carry 20 to 30% of the total travel. And, and I'd have to look into the DO database to see how many of those are true local versus people who may be connecting at one end of their flight or the other. You know, Eric, there's another thing that you and I shared. You are not, you and I both had uh, have technology in common. And what you we talk about saving grace, one of the things going for the airlines uh, in the days, you know, in the months, years after 9-11, the internet had just started to take hold as a consumer medium uh, in 2000. And I remember airlines using their websites to keep people informed and spending a lot of time and a lot of effort to keep people informed about cancellations, about new policies, about you know get to the airport early, email mark you know email marketing and things like that. We weren't quite at the point where we could do texting yet, but I remember you know the webmasters and others you know involved with e-commerce really putting in long long hours, but uh, e-commerce also uh, alleviated some of the call burdens to airlines reservation centers, which were overwhelmed. And airlines realized, oh, if we put this information on our websites, it can get shared and distributed a lot more easily than a press release can. I remember thinking, you know, this is going to be a catalyst because we'd had we'd had critical mass of residential high-speed broadband adoption. Websites were getting better design. Browsers were getting better, all of that. And I just remember thinking, this is going to be a catalyst for e-commerce. And indeed, in 
2002, 2003, we saw massive, massive growth in people shopping and buying travel online. And that really accelerated the adoption of e-commerce in travel. No, I definitely remember that run-up. Um, up until then, technology was kind of an afterthought, maybe second to the person that cleaned the trash cans. It became really important afterward. And I know that's when we saw the huge buildup in technology at American. The organization just exploded. Right. What are some of the other positives you think came out of all of this? I think the one thing that the airlines had going for them is they showed that they were resolute in working with airports and with government and with whoever, you know, other agencies to improve security so that something like this never, ever happened again. And yes, since then we had problems. We had the underwear bomber and we had the shoe bomber and other things. And we had to limit, you know, I remember at one point you couldn't carry any liquids on the plane, even in your carry-on bag, no matter the size. And then you could do the, the 311 rule came on and, and everything. We adapted. And that's the great thing about we as people, as humans, we adapt. Um, and look, the airline industry adapted. And 9-11, and we don't realize this. The crisis caused by 9-11, the evaporation of demand, the intense financial burden it put on airlines, forced airlines to rethink their business models. This was the beginning of when we started to see a little bit of unbundling happen and fair families emerge and other things where the airline said, okay, you know what? We're going to try to figure out how to also be more customer centric. There's a long way to go, but it frankly began somewhere around 2003, 2004. Shifting gears just a little bit. I was in uh, working on another interview and somebody asked me what I thought was one of the longest lasting impacts that 9-11 had. The one thing I could think of was how, for lack of a better word, the brotherhood between airline employees just seemed to be strengthened, reinforced, a lot more obvious to me after 9-11 than it was previous. I've always felt that uh, uh, airline employees are part of a brotherhood and sisterhood. I mean, you know, to quote from the old uh, uh, novel and movie Airport, executives will bash one another's heads in to steal a passenger from one another. But below that, People tend to be very cooperative and, you know, when the chips are down. One thing I do remember from my time, uh, at, especially at Continental, when one of our planes crashed at TWA, when we had a hijacking going on and, you know, some of the other tragedies that occurred while I was there, um, even at Trump shuttle, when our plane landed with nose wheels stuck up at Logan, uh, other airlines were more than gracious in reaching out to offer assistance if they needed, whether it was maintenance and technical help, help with uh, reaching out to families or you know who may have been affected or whatever was was called for. We needed to move employees anywhere, you know, let us know, we'll help you get your people where they need to go. I do think we've had that, but I agree with you that 9-11, I think, intensified the bond between airline employees and what was interesting, not just in the U.S., but worldwide, airline employees who, you know, no matter where they are now, I think, have that bond. 9-11 also was this moment that brought out the very best 
at the very worst possible time. Something else I've been hearing from people as I listen to, you know, their stories as as I talk with others is just how fresh and raw the the emotions are from this and I know in some of what I've heard you say the the emotions seem just as real today as they were 20 years ago. I will say this, you know, the scars of 9-11 are permanent for me, as I think they are for a lot. Uh, A few years ago, I went to the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, which is sobering, especially when you see the names of people you know engraved into that uh, granite. And I will tell you, I think that museum is beautifully done in so many ways, and it is highly emotional. It is... Uh, uh, it tears at you at, at every turn. But I will tell you where I lost it. It was when I came upon the display where there were some remnants of some of the aircraft and there was a piece of one of the American Airlines planes and you could see the red, white, and blue stripe and a, a, a damaged catering cart. And I just burst into tears and I just fell down crying. Because that to me, what was it it just, you know, that was a symbol that was so deeply personal. I began my career working on the advertising for American Airlines. And and I don't keep a logbook of the airplanes that I fly, but it is very possible that I may have flown on the American Airlines jet that flew into the towers, as well as the United Airlines jet that flew into the towers. You know, to see that, for anyone who's worked in the airline industry, for anyone who's an AF geek, it just, it, it pierced my heart. And I was doing so well at trying to keep everything together and I lost it then and there. And on that, our time is up. Um, it's really been good catching up with you. Um, guys. Hopefully we'll be able to do this again sometime on a slightly different topic. And I look forward to it. Thanks for listening. This podcast is made possible through individual donations and contributions. If you have questions or are interested in sharing your story, feel free to check out the Airline Voices Podcast page on Facebook, or you can email to airlinevoicespodcast at gmail.com. For those interested in helping support this podcast financially, please visit patreon.com and search for the Airline Voices Podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and Airline Voices Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you soon.